5. Our reading today is verses 21 through 42, and we're going to tack on one verse from chapter 7, verse 12, at the very end of it. That's on page 959 of the Sanctuary Bible in front of you, 959, Matthew 5:21. So just a word of introduction, we're on week four now on our series of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, just to recap, we looked at Jesus' attitude and explanation of his relationship with the law, and he said very clearly, I am not taking any of the law away. Nobody can take any of the law away. Instead, I am here to fulfill the law. And what he meant by that was he meant to bring the law to its intended goal, and he does that through his own obedience to the spirit of the law and to his Father, and that leads him all the way to the cross. And so Jesus is fulfilling the law by keeping the law. We're also going to find today that Jesus fulfills the law by expanding and explaining our relationship to the law, and he does that by intensifying the law, which we're going to see. Um, and so uh, what you could say is that Jesus is trying to be persuasive in a bit of a subversive way today, which I really like. He doesn't flat out say to people, it is impossible for you to keep the law, because there would have been some people in the crowd who said, who said he's wrong, I've kept the law perfectly, and then they would close their minds to it. But what he does instead is he said, you've heard it said that the law says do not, for example, do not kill. But I tell you, if you are, speak to your brother in anger, you've already committed murder. And, and so the people will then will start to think, and they think, well, I have been angry, you know. I have been angry at my brother. And so then this is kind of like how the parables work too. He lets people's minds work a little bit so that they could go to themselves, say, I can't keep it, I guess. So where does that leave me? All this time I thought I could keep the law. I realize now that I can't. That I can't. What should I do? So we're going to be looking at that, and it's fascinating stuff. It really is. At the end, we're going to get sort of the famous eye for an eye teaching, where Jesus teaches about non-resistance. So pay attention for that. Look for that. And we're going to finish it off by fast-forwarding to chapter 7 and the golden rule, because as Jesus says, obeying that rule is to be in harmony with all the law and all the prophets, and that's why it's added to this reading, because it really is a summation of the law and prophets, according to Jesus. So Brian and I are now going to read, and we're going to sort of take turns, because it's a long passage, and when there's a long passage, if we alternate readers, it kind of makes it a little more accessible to everybody, I think. So I'll, I'll start, and Brian will follow on. Let's read from Matthew 5.21. Jesus says, you have heard it said, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which means fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. 
on adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body for than your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, thank you, Brian, for reading with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless this word and the hearing of it, and that we may be blessed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So last week, uh, we were able to look at all four verses that I preached from verse by verse and sort of explain each one, and we're going to do exactly the same thing today, and so we'll finish just in time for kickoff. All right? No, just kidding. That's at 3.30. So we're not going to do that. We can't. It's impossible. But I want to talk about this maybe in segments. There's one, two, three, four, five segments in this. Loosely, the first one on murder, then on adultery, then on divorce, then on oaths, oaths, kind of hard to say, and then an eye for an eye, or the idea of non-resistance, non-retribution. And I'm going to sum up the first four segments by one word, which is intensification. You've heard me say this word before, and we're going to kind of explain what it means. Intensification is when Jesus takes this concept and pushes it further and expands its scope and expands its severity, okay? You'll notice that each one of these has sort of a pattern to it. In fact, all five of them um, starts with a phrase, you have heard it said or it has been said. So he's telling people, this is what you know. This is how it's always been. But then he follows it uh, with a phrase, but I tell you. So now he is actually setting himself up as somebody who has authority to preach on the law. And remember, he's not bringing a new law. He's not. 
He's not a new Moses. He's come to fulfill the law through his own obedience, but also to explain our relationship to the law, which we're really going to get to later on. So he's fulfilling the law by expanding the law. I tell you this, and there's more to the story then about just the law. Victoria alluded to it earlier, and I think we all know where this is going. So the law expands. It drives us further. It goes even closer to our motivations and our, motivation, our motivations and emotions that are underneath each of the ways that we break the law. And so he's beginning to pay off this promise he made that he's come to bring the law to its intended goal. And so <clears throat> the goal that I want, you know, I know some of you are taking notes, the goal that he really cares about today is to make clear what our relationship with the law is. Okay, and I'm going to repeat that because that's the point that I want us all to get, and I know some of you are taking notes. We want to, he wants to make clear what our relationship with the law is. Okay, how do we relate to the law? The law wants to do something powerful and useful for us, something that will help us come to salvation. The law has this powerful role to fill in our lives, and what some of the people he's talking to thinks is that that role has been that if they keep it perfectly, which they think they can do, then they will be in line with God's will. And Jesus is always going to be saying, it is impossible to keep this perfectly, and I'm going to prove it to you here. So, <clears throat> um, I have actually met somebody who's committed murder, um, and they weren't, at the time I met them, a scary person, but they had this sort of sense about them, because once you know that about a person, you, you're just, hmm, what, what could happen next, I think, is always what's in your mind, and, and, um, and they were in prison, and so they were, you know, I was definitely safe from them, but yet I, had, I have actually met a person who's committed murder. I would be surprised if too many people in this room had committed murder. I'd be a little surprised. We're kind of sub suburb suburban kind of church here, so I don't know if we have too many murders in the midst, but if we do, Really, God forgives you. God has a new life for you. Um, you may have served time for it, or you may have yet to serve time for it. Um, so I think, especially as a kid, when I would be taught the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, and it was one of them was, thou shalt not kill, it really was easy for me to kind of go, well, I got that one. Let's, like, let's, stick, let's go to the other ones. Like, thou shalt not covet, that, that was a lot closer to home, because I definitely wanted what other people had, like my brother, you know, my siblings. I even took things from them, so I, I broke two commandments. I coveted what they wanted, uh, what they had, because I wanted, and then I took it, so that was stealing, uh, and so I, I broke two laws. I broke two commandments. That was much closer to home, but murder, I, I safely put that in the realm of other people problems, right? This is not gonna, this is really not gonna probably be part of my future. I don't see myself in this situation. And so we're going to go through these, but this is, this is the first one. The first section is about murder. And what Jesus says is a real intensification. Verse 22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. If you call your brother a fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. And I don't think, um, so nobody hears a, well, I don't know. Here's, I'm going to do it in reverse. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you have never been angry at another person, 
I'm going to wait just, you know, 20 seconds, get, get the, the Jeopardy music. Dun, 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 dun. Anybody? Nobody's raising their hand. I'm giving you plenty of time. Okay, you have been angry with somebody else? All right, so according to Jesus, you have broken the commandments. You have committed murder. And in the eyes of God, you are the same as that person, that prisoner that I met, who had that aura of a murderer around him. And uh, I'm, not try I'm not saying this to offend you. I'm, I'm letting Jesus offend you through me. That's my goal, right? I'm, I'm just the messenger here. Jesus is the one who said it first. He's calling you a murderer. He's calling you a murderer. I mean, sort of get that clear in your head. This is what Jesus is saying. This is very personal. This is very local to you. You have broken the commandment, right? Okay, what else? Adultery, okay, the next section. The act of adultery is terrible, right? A breaking of a marriage vow, right? A loss of trust, all sorts of, all sorts of emotional pain follows that. And it's definitely there's a commandment against that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus says, well, wait, there's more. If you have a lustful thought about somebody, now you have also committed adultery. Okay, so that's also, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to do the hand-raising thing anymore, okay? That was a one-off. One but we're, so we get the idea is that if the murder thing wasn't enough, then the adultery thing was there. And just imagine what the people were sort of taking in at this moment where Jesus is standing on the hillside preaching to the people who are gathered. And some of them were teachers of the law. Some of them were Pharisees. Some of them were people who had prided themselves in their ability to keep the entire Ten Commandments plus a whole much larger corpus, we would say, of laws that go with it. And they had confidently come saying, I've kept all these since I was a child. Um, and, and to hear that their anger and their lustful thoughts actually made them sinners. So she's intensifying the commandment. And then we look at oaths. I'm going to skip over divorce real quick. Um, oaths, he says, don't take them, don't, swim by, don't sin by swearing on heaven or hell or perhaps, uh, you know. And it makes me think, like, I've been on jury duty. I've never been on the witness stand. But on the witness hand stand, you're supposed to put your hand on the Bible and kind of take an oath, and I'm not sure maybe a Christian shouldn't do that, right? You should find, maybe there's some other mechanism in the court where you're just going to say, look, I'm just going to say the truth. My truth is going to be my truth, and I'm going to say yes when I mean yes, and I'm going to say no when I mean no, and you'll just have to take my word for it. I don't know if anyone has ever sort of found a niche there where they can, they can do that. Um, but generally, Jesus is saying, you know, don't take oaths. Don't swear by Jerusalem, by heaven, by earth, by your head. You cannot make your hairs gray or, or brown in my case, and I wish I could, but I can't. So there you go. It's just starting to happen right here. Let your yes be your yes. Let your no be your no. When you say yes, you mean it. You say what you mean, and you mean what you say, and you do what you say you will do. And so, you know, there was a time when... Um, I don't think it really exists too much anymore, is when a deal would be made by a handshake, right? A handshake. That was, that was a deal, and it probably was even legally enforceable. Now we have documents, and that's good, because then you can read them again. But, but that's, that's, a, that's sort of giving in to our human nature that we're not reliable, we're not honest people when it comes to honoring what we say.
Now, let's look at divorce real quick because um, at that time, so I'm kind of going back one step to divorce, it's possible reading the rabbinic sort of literature that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. And it should be said that a woman had absolutely no legal basis to divorce her husband. So this was definitely a one-way street. It was, not, it was not enlightened or egalitarian. The ERA had not been passed, right? And it, it may not yet be passed in our country. It might be passed if, if you've been paying attention to the news. Uh, it's possible. But there was no equality for women then. So a man could divorce his wife if she displeased him in some way was one of the laws that they had. And so it could be that she didn't look as beautiful as she used to, or if she burned his supper, he could write her a certificate of divorce. And that's what Jesus says. Is anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And this is also sort of a social and economic justice thing, is that if he divorces his wife, and, and then she has no social security net necessarily, unless she has living relatives that she could go live with. And so her options then become extremely limited, and she's driven into a life of begging or prostitution or something terrible, right? Um, and so this is actually a very terrible thing to do to a woman, um, is to divorce her for very little reason. Now, there is a loophole, and Jesus, Jesus says it. He says, I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And so she gets married to someone else. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And so um, the only escape hatch in this is when the other person has not kept their commitment in the marriage. And listen, you may know that I'm divorced. I got married when I was 20 years old. I got divorced when I was 23 years old. It was a very difficult time. It was very painful. Um, and I could tell you more about that story. I have no problems explaining what happened to anybody. I just won't take the time right now. But I will tell you all about it if you want to know. But the idea is that we do believe in current Christian practice that divorce and remarriage of Christians is permissible. And not just for exactly adultery, because there's a lot of ways the idea is more that the other person has broken faith with that marriage in some way. And that could mean abuse, right? Abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Those are breaking of that marriage vows, that marriage vow, abandonment or neglect, or, and I would say, a relationship that has deteriorated so far that it's actually destroying somebody. Like they just can't function anymore because the relationship has become so toxic and so broken. And so it's, but these things, especially in that last case, as a pastor, I would spend a lot, if they ask me, I would spend a lot of time with a couple and really explore, is there a way for reconciliation to take place? Is there a way to honor your marriage vows? Is, can this happen? And if I'm, if I'm convinced that this is just a destructive relationship, even if there's no overt abuse or adultery or any of these other things, then I would, as a pastor, say, you know, this isn't the best. Uh, you know, you have many bad options, and, and getting divorced is a slightly better option than staying together. Because by staying together, you're kind of destroying yourselves. And so, and you can disagree with me. This is my own private sort of personal pastoral practice. 
Uh, Christians can disagree on this. And I've met, I've met um, Christians who um, got divorced, and uh, they are they're waiting for their former spouse to die so that they can get remarried. Because then, if they look at Paul's writing in Romans, they say, you know, if your spouse dies, then you're free to remarry. And so they're actually just waiting for someone to die so that they can start to have the life that God wants them to have. I feel like that's a little messed up, right? I don't think that's a great way to go. Um, the other thing that they do is they'll say, I'm divorced, but to make it okay that they're divorced as a Christian and remarried is they, there's an obligatory time where they have to trash the reputation of their ex-spouse so that you will see that it's, right? So I've, this has happened to me. This is, I'm divorced, I'm remarried. My first husband was horrible. He's cheated on me and he left me. Well, I didn't need to hear all that, but you needed to say that because you thought I was going to be judging you on this passage. I didn't need to hear that. And so the point with divorce is that these couples, they go through things that we can't see all the time. Sometimes they share them with pastors. Sometimes they share them with counselors. If they get a divorce, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they've tried to reconcile, and in the end, they couldn't. And there's stuff that has happened that we don't know. That's kind of my view on divorce. And uh, so, but Jesus is saying, even again, an intensification. You can't just divorce your wife for no reason. You only have one really good reason to divorce your wife. You need to honor your wife. You need to protect your wife, Okay. I spent a lot of time on that one. I want to give you an example of what it looks like. It would look like for us, and I really like this. There's a man named Joseph Stumpf. He's a, he's a theologian. And he wanted to look at the writings of Martin Luther and explain how Martin Luther understood the Ten Commandments, particularly the commandment about what you can and can't do when it comes to thou shalt not kill. And this is really a great expansion of the law. And I want you to think about this as I read it, okay? Um, this is when it says, we must not kill or injure other persons. So if for him, injuring another person, I, like getting in a fight at the bar, which I know you guys do on the weekend, and it's okay. No, it's not. Um, but getting, to an, getting into a fight, hurting somebody, yelling at them, yelling at them in anger, these are all breaking the commandments, right? Uh, but he adds to this list, anger, hatred, jealousy, revenge, Avarice, robbie, robbery, robbie, some nice guy named Robbie back there. No, robbery, I can't read. And a desire to hide past sin. We must be on our guard against all that the world would ever tempt us to do this great crime. Now, this is written in an older time, but I think it's just so classic, like a, an old throwback. A duel. You know about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, right? So that didn't end well for Hamilton, did it, you know? Getting into a duel, which we don't do anymore today, do we? You know, it's not like the Old West where they pull their guns on each other. But this is what it says. It is foolish as well as sinful to pretend to establish the right or wrong of a question by a duel because someone's going to die. That's breaking the commandment, clearly, isn't it? Unjust wars are wholesale murder. Rulers must do all that they honorably can to prevent war. Wars of aggression are murder, right? Um, yet as... This person writes, yet as a last resort to maintain the right, war is justifiable if you're trying to stop a great evil. Now, even Christians can disagree on that one. Hatred is murder in the heart. So hatred is a breaking of this command. We've been talking about this. Tempting others to useless risks in which they may perish or be endangered. 
And so uh, if you remember the, the, um, the Back to the Future movies where Marty McFly could always get goaded into doing something stupid by somebody calling him chicken, right? And so they would call him chicken, then he went and got in a car crash, and he couldn't play the guitar, and the whole future timeline was changed, and now you don't have to see the movie. But don't, you know, don't dare people to go do something stupid. That's breaking this law. Do you see how this is working, right? That if you expand this law, you kind of see that a lot of our activity is a breaking, or potential activity is breaking uh, of the law about thou shalt not kill. Um, don't tempt others to drunkenness or dissipation, which will shorten their life. Don't cause accidents by neglect or carelessness or bad workmanship. Imagine somebody builds ladders and they just do a poor job at ladder building and somebody else climbs the ladder and falls off. That's breaking this commandment because you're not protecting the life of another person. So doing good work in your business where lives are at stake is, is part of this commandment. Neglect to warn others of impending danger or neglect to assist them in need. When that, when that danger would result in their injury or death. So you protect, part of this law is to protect people from imminent danger and to warn them about it, okay? The law record, okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, also ourselves. We are to protect our own lives, our own lives and our own health. And so one thing that Stump says is a life of sin, impurity, drunkenness, gluttony, and dissipation will shorten our life. Our life is precious to God, and so we should not shorten our own life by our choices, right? Disregarding the laws of health by overworking or needless exposure or carelessness or violent anger or needless worry. Wow, okay. Man, where do I stop? I mean, it's like, so I need to take care of myself. I don't need to, if I work a 90-hour week for six months straight, I'm going to ruin my health. That's a breaking of this commandment. Whatever needs to get done should be you know, you need to take care of yourself. All that, now I'm done with that, I'm done with that, but I want you all to see that really all that makes sense, does it? Was there anything in there that didn't make sense? Was there anything in there that you didn't say, oh, that, you know, that, that's really way too expansive? No, it all makes sense. This is the keeping of the law. Look at Romans, now look at Romans 7, 13. You don't have to look at it because I'll read it to you, but look at, this is the last thing that Brian read. Uh, and this is what it says. This is how we're going to kind of pull it together. Paul writes, did that which is good, which is the law, then become death to me? Did the law cause me to die? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, the law produced death in me through what was good, that is, through itself. So that through the commandment, now listen to this part, so that through the commandment, sin might become Utterly sinful. That's the relationship with the law that Jesus wants us to find. And he's doing it by intensifying the law. Um, this is a phrase we need to remember. And I love how Jesus and Paul are on the same page here. It points to the, sort of the continuity of the Bible, the unified message of it, which is that the, the commandments are not soft. It doesn't have loopholes. It's not the ten suggestions, right? These are commandments. Jesus is not taking anything away from any of them. If anything, he's adding to them. The law is so serious that it makes the highest of demands. The law matters. The law should guide our lives. The law has something to say. The law makes us realize that we're sinners. And our response is not, I've done pretty good. 
I've gotten pretty close. Our response is, my response is, I am completely without hope when I look at this. I cannot keep it. I cannot keep these laws when you put it like that, Jesus. And another way of saying this is, I am poor in spirit. Remember that? I am poor in spirit. I'm desperate and wretched and hopeless and empty and broken. The law makes sin utterly sinful. It drives me to Jesus in an attitude of forgiveness. Please, Lord, forgive me because I've broken all these laws in a myriad of ways. Of course, Jesus says, blessed are we when we finally get this, right? Because we know only one way the law is kept, by Jesus on our behalf. That's the only way the law is kept. And when we get that, then we get the kingdom of heaven. This is great news. So on the other side of the bad news is the good news. The bad news drives us to the cross, and the cross is this fountain of grace that covers us up. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about how do we keep this, right? We are to keep this. This is important for us. But we're unable to keep this. And so this is the quandary that we're in. This is the paradox. We're expected to keep this. We're accountable for not keeping this. But it's impossible for us to keep this. And what is the answer to that? Well, the answer is the Spirit. Once we have the Savior, we also get the Spirit. The Spirit becomes a gift to us, a helper, a counselor, a guide, and God's power to affect change in this world, including in us. And it gives us a supernatural ability to do something that is not possible for us to do naturally. And so one example when you look at the very last section where it says an eye for an eye, if somebody tries to take something from you, you give them even more, okay? And I don't do that naturally. I tend to fight back, take back. I, and, and the scriptures say, do not resist, right? So there's a story of one of the desert fathers. These are people that are like hermits. They lived in small caves in the wilderness, and they prayed, and they, they sometimes lived in communities, but they had their own little sort of like a cave, or they called them cells, but that's not quite the right word. And um, once some robbers came to one of the desert fathers and they forced their way into his cell and what few possessions he had, they took them all and they, they just took them off and they took all his stuff. And so he's trying to put all the pieces back together and he goes after them and he stops them. You think you know what's going to happen though. And he says to them, you know, I, under the mattress, in all the tumult, I found one thing that you missed. Here's one more of my possessions that you didn't get. And he gives it to them. Following the law in a supernatural way. Only the Spirit could help him. And the story goes that at that moment, the robbers all of a sudden decided to go back to his cell and put everything back in its place. Now, it's, I don't even know if that story is true, but it's really good, right? It's a really good one. That's the supernatural if I was that guy, I'd be like licking my wounds going, I have one thing left, I better hold on to this. But he, in his faith and in his obedience, supernaturally, I think by the Spirit, goes out. And God then is able to do something. 
out of all that that we can't expect. Um, I want us to remember that, again, the Sermon on the Mount is about discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is about how we can grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. So we've heard it said, and Victoria preached about us being a light to the world, so there's definitely this part of discipleship that has to do with our witness to the rest of the world, and that's absolutely true. And actually, there's, there's sort of three things that we want to think about with discipleship. One is our relationship to God, the other is our relationship to ourselves, and the other is the relationship to the rest of the world. And today, I would say we're really looking at our relationship with ourselves as we understand who we are in our relationship with the law. A disciple is somebody who knows the law, both in its simple form and in its expanded and intensified form, and knows the law and to such an extent that they realize what sinners they are, and they're always on their knees asking God for forgiveness and being poured into with his grace. Praise God. But at the same time, they know the law, and so they know what a righteous life looks like, and they strive for that. They strive for that with the help of the Spirit so that they can actually be a light to others so that they could see their good deeds and glorify their Father in heaven, as it says. And so there's two aspects even of discipleship working here today, is that we work on ourselves, we figure out who we really are, we know that we can't keep the law, and Jesus keeps it for us and sends us the Spirit so that we can do some supernatural things, and that becomes a witness to the rest of the world. And we end then with simply, I think, what the Spirit's ultimate ability is, is to help us keep the golden rule. Simply to do, other, do to others as we would have them do to us. Did I get that right? I just kind of got ahead of myself. Well, I, you can't mess up the golden rule. You know what it is, all right? And so the Spirit helps us to do this. And Jesus says, all the law and all the prophets hang on this one. So let's end it there. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this law that you have given us, even the intensified law of Jesus. Father, drive us to the cross. Drive us to your mercy through the law. Help us know who we truly are in you and empower us to be followers of you, true disciples. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.